0: You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Hi, I'm Lauren Smith, Education Editor at Campus Review. Today I spoke to QUT Professor Richard Jefferson. He's the founder of the online platform The Lens, which has a new metric which shows how academic research impacts industry and innovation by looking at patent citations of such research. I thought a good place to start would be just you describing the concept of innovation cartography.
1: Uh, innovation cartography is the um, is the concept that we've used uh, to, to to center our thoughts on how we can increase the quality and participation in solving problems, often using science and technology as part of the innovation landscape. The point I raise in the Nature commentary is that. Solving a problem, for instance making a product that that affects our daily lives or a practice that we we undergo, involves dozens if not hundreds of different pieces of innovative capability. Some of them are pieces of science, some of them might be marketing capabilities, some would be manufacturing, some would be intellectual property compliance. So in a sense, putting together a product that affects you or I as a citizen requires assembling a complex jigsaw puzzle of capabilities. The challenge is in in the public sector, we think that investing in science yields necessarily an outcome that is beneficial for society without contemplating this entire spectrum of capabilities we need to assemble. Innovation cartography is the idea that uh, we should have open public facilities that allow us to map the necessary capabilities, the necessary partnerships, and then envision pathways to get where we want to go. When we do this, we think the efficiency will be better, the equitability will be better, uh, and the impact will be more that which is chosen by the public sector. So innovation cartography is mapping the landscapes of innovation well beyond just the science itself, but including all of the other capabilities needed to make products and services. The reason I developed these concepts and the reason I started with this long uh, journey over 30 years ago was because I, as a scientist in Cambridge, England, I had invented um, one of the main technologies in plant genetics that could have and did change agriculture dramatically. My vision, however, was that it would be shared widely uh, and that uh, innovators, problem solvers around the world, in the developing world as well as in the industrialized world, would be able to use these techniques they developed to solve problems in a more effective way. That was my intention. And so as I developed it, I developed sort of a biological open source um, concept that started in the 80s around the same time that the software open source concept started but I ran into a very serious problem software basically is protected typically by copyright which is a permissive right you if I create something I can determine who gets to copy it who to make use of that in the of that but in science that doesn't work that way as I pointed out there are many many other pieces required to make a piece of science actually become a product This isn't the case with software. So the idea that that has worked so well in open source software proved to be ineffective in using science to solve problems. So though I wanted to share my scientific technology with everyone, it didn't have the intended effect of letting more people solve more problems in a more equitable manner. In fact, it was just the opposite. So it ended up that my technologies, even though they're amongst the most cited in uh, in the world, ended up enabling further domination by large multinationals of our agricultural production system, which was not my intention. So I started to look at what is happening out there, and I realized that these are corporations that are very sophisticated and understand that they must spend millions, tens of millions, and sometimes, believe it or not, hundreds of millions of dollars to understand the landscape in which they operate, which is mostly the patent system and the regulatory system. So they did that at huge expense, but the public sector was in a don't ask, don't tell mode. They didn't know about it. They had no incentives to know about it. They didn't care about it. And frankly, because of that, they were complicit in the misuse of the innovation system. They would do their science and leave it at that and not ask, well, how do we how do we share this science? What are the other issues that we should be concerned with? If we want to see, for instance, small-scale agriculture benefit from the best of science. It's not going to be done by just publishing it and hoping for the best. It has to be done more actively. So we started out developing with help from the Rockefeller Foundation, something that was the precursor of the Lens called the patent lens, which started 17 years ago and was the first full-text global patent search in the world, and it went on, it's been up in various forms in patent lens and now it's successor, the lens for almost 17 years, 24-7, as a major public resource to search and understand the world of patents. So the tangible situation was my technology, which allowed one to genetically modify crops, was useless to the rest of the world unless they understood what all of the other pieces were required, what the patents that would block its use, what the patents that would enable its use, what the regulations and the difficulties would be to overcome to make a product, for instance, a rice plant that was more nutritious, but in particular, one that was developed by a small enterprise that could be trusted by the public. So this was not clear. We had to make it clear. And so of course of that, we discovered that there was this huge disconnect between the public sector which claims to care about public good and the private sector, which actually knows what's involved in producing a product. This disjunction is the focus of our work for the last 25 years.
0: Can you explain how searching a patent can help a company or a researcher develop a new technology, for example?
1: Well I won't say that it it can help them develop a new technology, but the most important aspect is that it helps them develop an appreciation for who they should be talking to, what partnerships they should form because nothing is done as a solo activity. The idea of the of the cowboy researcher you know trailblazing is really mythologically silly. it doesn't happen. The most important way to solve problems is collectively with partnerships done within um, with incentivized uh, institutions and people so what searching a globe, the global patent corpus does is allows you to understand for the first time, outside of the echo chamber of scholarship, who are the other players? What are the institutions? Is it true that uh, IBM and Qualcomm and, and uh, other companies are involved in this field? Are they paying attention to the root- literature? Do they know things I don't that I need to be involved with to see a product come out? If I, as a scientist, have a new, uh, a new soil treatment protocol, do I understand what companies are involved in turning those things into products? And should I be talking to them? Should we form relationships? Should we have a collaborative research project, for instance? The, the number of uh, features of the innovation landscape that are critically opaque to, to academics is huge. People who fund ARC and HMRC, the US NIH, NSF, these are organizations that fund based on science saying it's good science. But it's not funding saying, and we've planned a pathway to take it to the public. We only say it's good science. Well, good science in a dollar gets you a cup of coffee. You have to actually somehow anticipate making it work for the society. So reading patents is not a matter of saying that, oh, they're all bad or oh, they're all good. But what they do is expose you to the players, the actors in in the innovation space. So when I put my technology through, if I were to look at the scope of my scholarship on the lens, which we can now do, we can put anyone's scholarship in, I can then ask, what are the companies that are filing patents and making products, innovations and inventions and products that are inspired by or informed by my scholarship? When I do that, I begin to say, oh my God, I had no idea that uh, the US tobacco company was interested in what I do. Yuck, I didn't know that. And I should understand what they're doing with it and make sure it's within the zone of what I had contemplated. And if not, I should rethink how I distribute and share my work. So it's a matter of making what looks to be a sophisticated piece of science into a more embedded piece of culture. Meaning, how does the science become uh, part of the, the social fabric of, of value, whether it's economic value or practice value? So we have to make that possible. Up until now, it has not been. Patent searching has been very, very expensive. Um, it has been non-integrated with the scholarly literature. It has not been part of the norms, the culture of scholarship. So one of the things we've done in develop this new global ranking system, which is very impactful, as you can tell, the major scholarly journal in the world is Nature, and it's backing it completely with its endorsement and its supplement, is developing a system that actually lets institutions and scholars discover what innovators and product developers are actually reading their works and being inspired by them. And it allows you to then rank an institution or a person based on whether their work is influencing that product development world. And that's an interesting thing. They don't have to own patents. They have to show that they're influencing people that bother to apply for patents. It's very useful. But it's also useful because it brings all of these actors to our table to start learning how valuable it is to look at the whole picture, not just one part of a picture.
0: I know that that metric has just launched, but in general, what's the reception been to the lens from both industry and academics?
1: Let's put it this way. It's been up for 17 years continuously. It's been funded by the most credible institutions in the world. Uh, It's been funded by the Gates Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Lemelson Foundation, the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. And as an example, the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation is funded by the man who founded Intel Corporation. The Gates Foundation, as you know, founded Microsoft. Um, The Lemelson Foundation was the most prolific American inventor. These other foundations, Rockefeller is one of the great corporate barons. So people who are used to thinking about what's necessary to make products have funded the lens and speak highly of it. We have been partnered with the largest research institution on earth, the U.S. National Institutes of Health. We've also been funded by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Um, Curiously, and I think very interestingly from your journal's point of view, uh, Australia has been, no surprise here, um, almost completely unsupportive of the lens while it's stri- uh, it's been extraordinarily widely embraced globally. So, NIH, Crossref, ORCID, all the big international players uh, both use uh, and support the lens. We've never had funding from Australia, other than that of the visionaries at QUT, which is stunning. Never from the Australian Research Council, never from NHMRC, never from Intellectual Property Australia, which is the Australian Patent Office. We end up getting funding here in Australia from the U.S. government, from the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, but not from IP Australia. It is really amusing. We have partnerships with the U.S. NIH, not with the Australian Research Council, not the Department of Education, not the Department of Innovation and Industry. At no point has the Australian government shown interest in this, whereas QUT, to their enormous credit, and to the credit of the vision of both their vice chancellor, Peter Coldrick, and their deputy vice chancellor, Rune Sharma, see the extraordinary disruptive effect this can have uh, on improving the impact of of public funding of science on society. So they did something that almost no university has ever done, but they put their own money into seeing this spin out as a benefit corporation, lens.org, which is very much to their credit.
0: Do you have specific examples of companies or researchers who have used the lens and benefited from it?
1: Sure. I'll give you one of the most tangible because often you can tell the benefit by how much they're willing to pay for it. Um, Because we don't charge for access, this is a unique feature of the lens that differentiates us from every other player. We neither charge for access to anything we deliver, everybody gets the best we have. Whether you're a big multinational or a maw and paw plant breeding company, you get the best we have. The other thing we don't do is instrument our site so people don't, we don't monitor our users. Unlike Google, which is the most insidious loss of, of privacy there is, we don't monitor the users, we don't optimize, we don't add, advertise, we don't sell that knowledge to third parties, so it's quite confidential. So you could say, well, how can you tell who's using it and what they're doing? They volunteer that knowledge to us. So an example, Syngenta, the large, uh, one of the largest uh, agriculture and seed companies in the world, not only uses our site all the time, but has commissioned us uh, to the tune of over $500,000 to actually improve the development of certain aspects of our site in an open source fashion. So they knew that we said we would not take their money unless every line of computer code is open source, every piece of information is open access, and that the contract is completely an open, non-redacted contract. So to be trusted by people, we don't want secrets. So corporations, in that case, half a million dollars just to improve one of the core features of our of our facility. Another corporation, a very large one, Qualcomm, uh, which is responsible for much of the wireless communication in the in the iPhone you're using, or Android phone, came over during the launch with Julia Gillard in 2013, the first launch of the alpha form of the lens. They sent their head of intellectual property over, donated 200000 U.S. dollars with no strings attached, and showed up to meet up with the prime minister at the launch. So corporations that have a vested interest in two different fields, in that case agriculture and another one in, um, in communications technologies, have put money where their mouth is, and that money is not contingent on owning a piece of it. It's not in any way. Or, for instance, let's look at scholarly communication. In a sense, one of the best ways to have a finger on the pulse of scholarship is to have a finger on the pulse of where scholars publish. The most prestigious uh, organ for publishing in the world is nature. We have long been friends uh, with the editor-in-chief and the staff of nature. Um, We have been featured in their editorials in many occasions. But more importantly, they voted with their dollars as well. This nature index, which had just come out, was very expensive to produce and largely features the lens as the principal tool for a new type of metric. So the organization that represents at the highest possible level of credibility, scholars, believes that this is the right thing to do. It promotes it in editorials, promotes it in a joint um, supplement about innovation. So if one looks at this, we've got corporations in, in several different field, not only using it, but funding it to become a better public tool, we have organizations that represent scholarship at its highest level saying that they need it. The largest funder of scholarly work on Earth is the U.S. National Institutes of Health. It spends about $28 U.S. dollars on extramural research. We are publishing this work on the ranking system and the analyzer with the U.S. NIH as authors on this topic. So they're putting huge amounts of work in to collaborate with us. We are linked to the main bibliographic database on Earth called PubMed at the U.S. NIH. So in terms of credibility, we've pretty much slam-dunked it all. We have credibility of the largest funders on Earth, Gates Foundation, uh, large corporations believe in it, and they believe in it without having to own a piece of it. So all of that com- basically conflates to saying to me that we're on the right track. Now, do individual academics pay much attention to it? No, not yet. Not least because they don't have to. They're living in... Um, sort of an echo chamber, sort of a la-la land, where as long as they just do science and throw it at the wall, that's all that matters. But increasingly, organizations, even such as the ARC, are saying that it matters whether their work finds its way through to society. Right? So what's happening? They're encouraging them to look at this and use this new ranking system. So to ask how the ranking system is being taken up, gosh, it's, you know, it's, only, it's only published three days ago. You're one of the first, maybe the first to write about it. So we'll see. But at this point, it's getting... I've seen 20 or 30 press releases from around the world, including ranked institutions that are very, very proud of their ranking in this system. The thing that makes our rank unique is unlike every other ranking on Earth, this is not only an open and transparent ranking, but it allows an institution to drill down to specific works, specific authors, specific fields of use, to discover their strengths and weaknesses, and more importantly, to get information necessary to improve. If you look at some of our nominal competitors, the academic ranking world universities, used to be called the Shanghai Jiao Tong ranking, it is explicitly and almost egregiously simplistic. They say, we rank you based on how many Nobel laureates you have, whether you've published in Nature and Science, and things like that. But what happens when you get a ranking of number 78 in that? It becomes 77, what does it say? Oh, get more Nobel prizes, as if you weren't trying. Or it says, Get more publications in nature, as if you weren't trying. It gives you no sensible avenues to improve your game. It's only an attaboy after the fact, and it lets the powers that be continue to be the powers that be. What we expose is the entire corpus of scholarship of any university and any institution allows you to drill down and understand which part of that scholarship is influencing which industries. The way I would frame it is from ranking to Rolodex, In a sense, what we're trying to do is turn every single ranking into a living Rolodex of potential partnerships to be formed to give you um, pathways to productivity. So this is not just a ranking system. It is exactly what you say. We seduce universities to paying attention because it's a ranking system, but then we give them the tools to improve their game, to find out where they can be influential and where they're not, where their competitors are influential that they could be additionally so. It's a big difference in an open, transparent, public system that gives you from ranking to Rolodex. You have a Rolodex. You basically have a way of finding out what your university is being used for in the economics of the world. QUT have been beyond bold. They've been spectacular in supporting this and have gone so far beyond any other institution in walking, doing what I call walking the walk. I mean it's so easy for institutions to talk about it and say oh yeah you know we really care about this or care about that But they've put belief in us, they've put resources into us, they've enormously helped us do something uh, that is publicly admirable. And I hope that, considering that Peter Coldrake is is concluding his term in six months as the Vice Chancellor, I hope you can make it clear that his his belief in this system and his vision has been absolutely instrumental in making this the global success it is. And the Gates Foundation appreciates that enormously, and they fund QUT substantially. Um, and many other institutions do, so Arun Sharma and Peter Coldrake really have gone the extra mile they really have, so uh, they deserve a lot of credit for this it's not It's not a trivial thing as you can sense to to make a metric that you don't even figure well in, which is amazing. I mean it's not as if they're trying to come up with a tool that makes QT look like rock stars. In fact, it doesn't do that
0: I just uh remembered. Oh,
1: Let me explain something. The, the the culture of scholarship is very insular, and it's extraordinarily difficult to understand where it impacts in economics. And to do that, you have to be very single-minded. Asma, um, who has not only a PhD from Cornell, but also a master's of international law, is perfectly poised to do that. And so what she's done in this is taken all the best ideas we could come up with and, and driven them to absolutely new levels of productivity. So she is the driver of these two what are called apps on our site. So there's uh, PatSite is one, which is the nuanced, in a sense, the Rolodex. And then there's the Inform, uh, which is the ranking system. She's previously been the driver for the app called PatSeat, which exposes gene patenting very, very clearly for the first time. So I guess what I'd want to say about Osmod is that she has shown a degree of um, tenacity in, in making this thing work as a, as a productive application. Uh, that is really unprecedented. So she's not behaving as an academic, neither is she behaving like a um, uh, an industry partner. What she is doing is behaving uh, as a social change agent by being very, very, uh, how to describe it exactly, very um, tenacious is a great word, in, in making sure the app works really well. And she interacts with many of the universities who are featured in the app uh, as well as others. So you want a little bit of her history to have gone up from a little village in Lebanon through to becoming uh, uh, the driver of this major social change element is is non-trivial. To be an, an Arab-Australian woman from that little town uh, and to have shown up into this, it just speaks really well of Peter and Peter Coldrake for having appointed her as a, as a full professor uh, and she's delivered the goods. And-
0: okay, well thank you so much for taking the time.
1: My pleasure.